Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys Discussing Software. Two Irish Guys, Tomas. Thank you, Brendan. Two Irish Guys Discussing Software. My name is Tomas O'Leary, joined here by my very good friend, Brendan Walsh. It's good to be here. Delighted to have you. This is the podcast where we talk about everything in the software world, software news, ways of avoiding getting ripped off, alternative ideas, innovations, best ways to save money, and ultimately helping to take back control, as they say across the water. Um, Take back control of your software budget, take back control of your software licenses, and take back control of the relationship you have with your mega vendors, which we like to talk about. Probably one in particular we like to talk about, which is IBM. Absolutely, it's IBM. It's been a while since we've had this podcast. had a bit of a pause. Yes. You've been traveling, I think. (laughs) <laughs> yes, enjoying yourself. Yes, I was in Japan. I've had a fantastic time, and I have um, not such a great result for the Irish in Japan, mind you. No, no, it was a bit of a disaster in rugby. Yeah. But the country is amazing. It is one of the most efficient countries. It's one of the safest countries in the world. Uh, you would honestly, you'd love it. It's beautiful. It's packed full of people. Yet you don't feel like you're. It's squashed on the side. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's also the photos. Looks very clean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very clean. Very clean. But I don't think it was a disastrous World Cup. I think it was good for the country and for rugby. It was just not good for us. <laughs> As Irish people, it was terrible. Yeah. But for rugby in general, South Africa winning the World Cup was brilliant for them. And I think that ultimately, in the day, the best team won. And Japan, as a nation, totally embraced it. I mean, they were, they were, they sold out of all this replica jerseys. You couldn't buy a replica jersey anywhere in Japan. If they like merchandising, I'd say. They, they do, they do. They yeah. couldn't get them kind of made quick enough. But, and uh, a lot has been happening while you've been away. So we've, you, a, we've a lot to catch up on. So we, we've, the podcast topic today is, uh, we're going to be joined later by Mark Bartrick, a friend of mine from Forrester Research. And our topic today is really to look at what are you doing with your budget and consequences? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about some news before we, we ask what Mark will join us in about kind of 10 minutes' time, but there's been lots of things happening. I mean, can we talk about our favorite topic, IBM? We have to talk about that. It's on the list. What have they been doing? They've been selling more companies, I believe. They have. They continue to divest. And uh, as uh, was said by Dean Romaji, there's a... Uh, you know, should I best anything that seems practical? So, you know, we've had the Red Hat divestment, uh, we had the Watson marketing, uh, uh, sorry, the Red Hat acquisition, uh, but that was followed by the HCL divestment, we had the Watson marketing divestment, yeah. uh, to Centrebridge. And what have they done now? Algorithmics. So they sold their algorithmics product, which they only acquired about, I think it's eight years ago for close to 400 million. And they've sold that off to SSNC. So another uh, legacy product. Uh, we see that a lot actually in our in our business. But another legacy product sold off. Most more than likely to try and fund the thirty four billion dollars that they spent on uh, on Red Hat. Yeah. yeah. And they're treating their staff badly again. They're treating it bad. I don't know whether you saw this news. The Register this week talking about a uh, new acronym uh, IBM I. Lock money is the new acronym. Is <laughs> right. the new one? Apparently, according to a 17-year sales veteran from California who's suing IBM in the courts of California for not having a contract 
That's very unlike IBM. They're like having contract. a contract. Yeah. And, uh, allegedly, they're um, not paying commission. So it's not about it? not having a transparent contract, just not having one at all. By all accounts, apparently, yeah. it's having no account. And apparently, yeah. their, their fence, according to the register, was, uh, was actually that very fact. No enforceable contract. <laughs> yeah, well, Can you believe it? You've got to read the T's and C's. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, and speaking of you know acquisitions and Red Hat and so forth, so Eric Shander, who was the, uh, the, the finance chief in Red Hat, since that acquisition, yeah. uh, speaking of not wanting maybe to pay out an obligation, so he's been let go. Mm-hmm. Um, very little has been said since his departure other than he's been let go for not maintaining workplace standards. Uh, in Red Hat, where he's been for a while, but, okay. uh, but he loses out on a four million uh, dollar retention bonus. So had right. he stayed, yeah. uh, or had he been allowed to stay, uh, he was due to be paid four million in two tranches over over a twelve month period. But that apparently is off the table now because there's a soap opera here. There's a hundred percent soap yeah. opera here. And I it's can been see very the, quiet though since. But so. the central character and the, the, the <laughs> JR of Dallas, as they might say, is Ginny Ramity. Yeah, well, maybe, Merrick, maybe Eric Shander will turn up in a shower in a few episodes' time uh, with a bit of a backlash. So, But in all, but in all seriousness, Ginny Ramity, now, she's in the company eight years. Eight years. She took over the organization. This is finishing on nearly eight years. Um, from San Palisbano, they, uh, the company's gone from... Uh, turnover of over 100 billion to turnover of less than 75 billion potentially this year, depending on the numbers come out. You're looking at a 25% reduction over those years. Stock value was in excess of 200 billion as a company. It's now 120 billion or less, depending on the time or the day of the week you're looking at the stock. So there's, there's some, and they've, they've, what has she been doing? What has she been doing in, that, in those eight years? Like, honestly, it's like you just talked about the well, divestiture. Selling assets. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the former acquisitions that, that haven't worked, like Watson. Watson was a bit, a bit of a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, sell that off uh, and then try something else. So, you know, putting, I think, all the money into, into the Red Hat acquisition, which is one of the only performing divisions at the moment. It is, it is up 19% uh, year on year, but... Um, for the last quarter, but the overall group revenue is down. You couldn't give IBM credit for that. I mean, the, the Red Hat was no. growing. Red Hat was growing anyway before they bought them, and you know, the, IBM has spent thirty-four billion. They're still okay. They generate a lot of cash. Very different companies. One very transparent, open-source company yeah. versus one, you know, very locked down, totally mm-hmm. not transparent. I think the CEO of, of, of Red Hat said that we should be maintained like the Switzerland. Uh, of Europe, they want to be just left alone to do mm. their own thing, not mm. be brought into the fold. Yeah. Because that's the that's the best thing for the company. But they're going to have to stop buying back their stock. So that's constant money. I mean, they're, they're going to re- they're going to make this acquisition work. Mm. They're going to pay. They're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. and they're going to invest in it. So they're, got, they're going to have to some stage stop buying back their stock. But also, how they're treating their staff? Are they going to do the same thing to Red Hat that they've done to their own teams? Like well, the Red Hat employees will not hang around to, to, to find out yeah. if they see a trend. Yes, yeah. that's. The type of people that work for Red Hat are not the type of people that would traditionally work for IBM. They would be much more free-thinking and open-minded and, as I said, transparent. So uh, that's a risk. That's why I think they want to remain at Switzerland. They want to have to maintain their own culture because they have two very different cultures. The jury's really out still. The jury's really out. I mean, if you could look at the last three months since we last spoke, the, you know, the Dow 
what's happening in the stock market now, you nor I are even close, remotely close to being any sort of even amateur expert in this stuff. But just looking at them, just pure news, it's up about a thousand points. It's tremendous. <laughs> it's up about a thousand points. Yeah. But I even got nowhere. It's been up and down, but it's actually pretty much the same. We sat here three months ago, stock price is broadly the same. Hasn't moved at all. Pretty stable. Yeah. It went up and it's gone down again since they uh, they've announced some results again. They've announced results which which are you know not great overall. Uh, I mean they boast about you know cloud revenues uh, being up, but overall revenues are down. Uh, I'm not so sure about those cloud numbers. We talked about that in previous podcasts as to what's really cloud revenue. Mm-hmm. You know those dual entitlement licenses that we talked about that are attributed to now, that go to the cloud revenue line. I'm not so sure about that because actually most of them are. Perpetual licenses, um, but I read a little snippet. I thought it was quite interesting that since 1916, IBM have failed to pay out on a quarterly dividend. So despite the failures, uh, dividends are the cash is flowing mm. back to the shareholders. So since, from the since the Sam, <laughs> so from the customers to the shareholders, that's free cash flow is uh, yeah. good. So the jury's out. Let's let's see how that that, that soap opera develops. Um, there's been a couple of other things that have been happening in the last few months. You know I'm involved in the organization Free ICT, the, mm-hmm. the non-profit organization that promotes the secondary market here in Europe. We had a report that was published which picked up a couple, a couple of organizations, an economic impact assessment produced by Deloitte, looking at the importance of the secondary market in Europe. Mm-hmm. A couple of headline pieces from that, and I won't go into the detail because there was a press launch on it. But I think what was really interesting is the size of what we measure was the aftermarket, which is basically mm-hmm. Most of the IT services industry, which includes third-party maintenance, it doesn't include the acquisition of software, but it does include software maintenance. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, it's estimated to be about forty-six billion with two hundred and twenty thousand people employed. The the analysis that was done, though, the secondary market, if it's embraced properly here in Europe, um, is potential to grow the number of jobs by about hundred thousand jobs in the next three to four years, but reduce the spend, mm-hmm. reduce the spend. Because there's a huge amount of waste, and this is the something we're going to talk with Mark in shortly. I mean, for organisations who are spending money every year, this is a big, big problem. Having every year they're looking at where are we wasting, wasting money? There's a massive amount of waste in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's software in itself is the second highest you know spend category in an organisation, but the margins that organisations make, you know, such as SAP and Oracle, are you know, savage. You know, as yeah. we say here in Ireland. Yeah. Um, you know, in the 80 to 90 percent category, so there's a huge amount of property made, a huge amount of waste. So it's not surprising they're impressive figures from that report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We did. We had another report. We, we our organisations mentioned it. We, we were. We did a webinar on it recently. We did. Myself and a colleague Sinead did a, did a webinar. It was on the Gartner report, which is a report relating to the third-party software maintenance market. So a number of vendors, including yourselves, related to IBM software, third-party support for IBM software mentioned. And yeah, it was pretty conclusive. I mean, the guide basically said to the readers, do not neglect, you know, to look at your options. Do not neglect to look at the costs related to maintenance. Do not neglect to look at the options and ways of reducing it. Pretty conclusive. I talked about the market, the increase in the market. The market's going very fast. So much like the uh, Deloitte report, the third party support market for our software support is, is increasing at 33%. Again, not surprising. We see that all the time in our own industry. It's, it's going very fast. Uh, the analysts talk about it all the time, and 
you know, they talked about the ways, you know, why people are doing it, you know, when you should investigate it, and ultimately the cost savings of around 50% that you can make on uh, looking at alternatives. So a very, very impressive report. It's really only though the main top three mega vendors. It's Oracle, IBM, SAP, SAP. are the three, are the, three, are the, yeah, the yeah. ones that they focused on. Yes, it, it was, yeah. And, and it mentioned specifically that there was no identifiable third-party maintainer on Microsoft. Mm. That was kind of called out in the report. Yeah. Uh, there is a secondary market for Microsoft. There's a second-hand market for software or Microsoft licenses. Here in Europe. Here in Europe. Yeah. In Europe because of legislation. So, yeah. so that's a, a very strong market and growing. But... Um, it did say, though, that because of the growth in the market, it mentioned a number of vendors. We were the only vendor that provides third-party support for IBM, some primary vendors for, for SAP and Oracle. But because of the size of the market, because users and consumers of the software are shifting to third-party, that other vendors will eventually arise. Yeah, um, yeah but it was an uh, yeah, interesting report, and it was the first of its kind. So it's nice, yeah. it was nice to get a mention. Yeah. And speaking of some of the bigger vendors, I noticed... Bill McDermott has left SAP. Right. Did you, have you heard that? I had heard that. Yeah. Service yeah. Now getting his, his services. Right. Um, yeah. Pretty quick move, actually. He's mm-hmm. had his notice. I think it was only back in September, and, or late September, early October, and he's already right. in the hot seat already. If not, if not sitting there, he's on his way into the room uh, with Service Now. Um, but SAP have been creating a bit of news. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and I read some of this online when I was actually re- reading some LinkedIn posts. It was actually Mark, uh, Mark's post, Mark, you come in a minute, that indicated that SAP are doing pretty well themselves. Their cloud bookings were up 38%, which is pretty impressive. Their cloud revenue is up 37%, and their total revenue is up 30%. Interestingly, their software license revenue is down, growing by 1%. So impressive numbers from SAP. Not surprising, I suppose. The numbers are up, but you know who's paying for that? I think it's coming out of the pocket of the consumers of the part of the solution. So if you if you uh, read the, the report we just referred to from Gartner, I think their margins or profit margins on software maintenance are uh, around ninety percent. Is that my correct? Eighty to ninety percent. So it's pretty high. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think that's research been done. If you look at even Forrester did on some of the research. And speaking of Forrester and SAP, in your the blog post you mentioned, uh, we'd like to bring in. A, Mark Bartrick. Mark, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thomas, good to hear your voice. Mark, lovely to talk to you. Mark, we've been friends for quite some time. We've done work together. We've been at conferences together at Forrester Research Conferences. You, uh, it's really good to have you on the show. What, what, where are you? Um, what, what have you been working on? You're, you're, I presume you're in the UK today? Yes, uh, I've been traveling a bit, but I'm in the UK today, uh, which is always good to get back on home turf. A little bit jealous of your trip, I think, Thomas. You're in Japan for the Rugby World Cup. Um, Neither of our teams did very well. (laughs) And I don't really want to talk about England's performance in the final, but there you go. So, um, but yes, I've been traveling with work. I've been pretty much helping clients um, a lot in Europe and and in North America, uh, particularly recently, and um, just helping them. You know, my day-to-day job is to help clients negotiate better deals with the big software vendors. Uh, That obviously includes the likes of Microsoft, Oracle, Salesforce, you know, IBM, of course. Um, and in fact, most recent success uh, was with a U.S. company on an SAP maintenance contract. And uh, the net result was we managed to take $7 million out of that annual support costs with SAP. Um, and, and that's SAP who, 
in their contracts say you cannot reduce maintenance. So uh, quite an interesting uh, conundrum for many SAP customers when they're struggling to get rid of shelfware, which was the situation for that particular client. I think they had about 30% of product they'd bought, but were never going to use, yet were still paying maintenance. And uh, that was their big bugbear, and they had to had to sort that out. So I managed to jump in and help them get $7 million out. So that's a nice little saving. Wow, that is, that is really impressive. And can I ask, did they change the service? So is the service, the exact same service, just reduced the price by $7 million? Exact same service, you know, the, you know, the SAP support. Yes, you know, there are third party support providers who can jump in and, and halve that price. But the client, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't want to go that route. They wanted to stay with SAP and and take advantages of some of the consulting side that they've got there. But the net the net of it was they had 30 percent of shelfware. It was costing them a fortune on an annual basis. Um, and SAP's initial you know, reaction was, well, the contract says you pay whether you use the software or not. You know, that's what their contract yeah. says. But, you know, there's no reasonableness about that. That's not logical. So, um, you know, what we had to do is create neo negotiation leverage for the client, find a reason for SAP to internally convince their management that actually this is an important client going forward. Um, there are potential for cloud revenues for SAP going forward. Um, but they had to play fair today and get rid of this shelfware issue um, if SAP wanted to enjoy future revenues, particularly cloud. And obviously SAP, you talked about the numbers earlier, Brendan, you know, SAP are, are really moving strongly into the cloud and, and there's a big success area for them there. Um, and that is the big motivation for their sales guys. You know, when they look at their compensation plan, they get paid to sell cloud and get people onto SAP cloud, not anybody else's cloud, SAP's cloud. Um, you know, and there's a huge, huge push on that. So finding leverage with that kind of carrot hanging out there was, you know, an opportunity that this client took advantage of. Um, and the net result was SAP did the right thing. You know, they, they cut out the shelfware costs, got rid of that maintenance without switching it, which they often try to do, without switching it into cloud credit. So effectively keep the revenue stream, but change it from on-premise maintenance to cloud spend is what their salespeople try to do. Um, and we managed to break that um, formula and just got their prices cut. And how have we ended up in a situation where there's so much shelfware? I, I had a conversation yesterday with a, with a, with a financial services company in, in the US who, when I was telling, explaining the, the kind of modus operandi to these, these, these individuals on the call, I was saying the modus operandi of the mega vendors, and in this case was IBM, is to sell, sell you stuff that you neither want nor need. And the guy goes yeah. on the phone back to me, which is basically shelfware. He goes, yes, and actually they're very upfront about it. They actually tell us their job is to sell you stuff that neither you want nor need. I was going, you are joking <laughs> me. <laughs> I thought at least they'd have the decency to not admit it. <laughs> Or at least try to hide it. Yeah. Well, how did we end up in this situation with so much shelfware out there? I, I tell you what, I think there's there's two things that have created that. One is the way salespeople are paid in the IT industry. Um, you know, they're paid to maximize revenues and they want to bundle as much up front as they possibly can. And they'll tell a client, hey, look, you know, if, if you just buy a bit more than you need today, we can get you an extra point discount on the whole lot. 
So there's some financial advantage to the client to buy stuff today they don't need today. Um, and that's how salespeople bundle it because obviously that's how they're commissioned. You know, the bigger the deal now is, the bigger the commission pot and paycheck they get. You know, so, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, this crazy situation has developed around clients having a lot of shelfware about. One of the other ones is um, client uh, vendors like to bundle stacks of product and sell it as a bundle. Um, and the reason they do that, I mean, that what they say to clients is, look, if you buy the bundle, it's cheaper than buying a la carte. Okay, well, there's some financial incentive there. But usually in, in any bundle, there's, you know, three or four good products and one or two dud ones. Um, and the bundling is the way the vendor can offload a bunch of dud products because the client, you know, vendors, uh, clients are buying the bundles, vendors are selling the bundles, vendors can claim they've sold a whole bunch of products, including some of the dud ones, uh, and they're just getting product off their books and revenue in their bank account. So it's kind of those two things. It's how salespeople are motivated is creating shelfware and it's i mean pretty much every client i go to has got it whatever the vendor um and also the way they package and bundle products creates shelfware um i had a, another client who's you know believe it or not got shelfware with salesforce now they're a SaaS company yeah i was gonna ask uh, you that you know so, are the cloud guys doing the same thing so in, in, uh, just thinking this comes the next question are they is it happening in the cloud world too clearly yeah oh yeah i mean it, perhaps even more so because uh, a lot of customers, you know, they're very familiar with buying on-premise products, you know, perpetual licenses with a nice little maintenance stream. Um, you know, everybody's very used to that. But this, the cloud world, even though it's been around for a few years now, is still, it seems like a lot of clients are jumping into it almost blindfolded. They're not really asking the right questions. They're not checking and testing what they're being proposed. Uh, and I'm coming across, you know, I mentioned Salesforce there. You know, I came across a Salesforce client the other day who bought way too much software and yet contractually they're still obliged to pay the subscription for it for the remainder of the term they bought a five-year term they're about year three now just just beyond year three they came to me and said can we do anything about it and i said well no you contractually obliged to pay for this stuff and like many software as a service vendors and I, by the way i think that's the wrong phrase for these guys i don't think it is software as a service to me software as a service is like electricity it's utility you should be able to turn it up and down each month and no, Salesforce yeah. are not that, Workday are not that, SAP, Oracle, Microsoft are not that. You know, they're just traditional vendors who are selling what they call software as a service, but it's really just cloud. It's subscription revenue. And the problem clients have is when they first sign that contract, they put a baseline on number of users and minimum, you know, minimum spend based on that users. And the contracts say you can't reduce it. You know, it's not like you, you know, electricity can turn it off this month and pay less next month. You know, you, you can't turn off your Salesforce contract midterm and say, we just want less users. So all of that creates clients who either buy too much to start with and, and then find they never use it or never implement it in the speed they thought they would. And therefore, two or three years in, they go, you know what, we're paying, I don't know, $4 million a year for this stuff. And we're actually only using $2 million, but we're contractually obliged to pay for for the remainder of the term, and there's your shelfware in the cloud. Would you ever, Mark, advise clients to, to, to stop locking themselves in for such long terms? Because five years is a long time, and things change, and um, you know, it's hard to predict, but, but it, it seems like a long time, and therefore they end up in this predicament two or three years into the contract, where they're locked in for another couple of years, and it's just uh, more waste, as we referred to earlier. 
It is. It is. I, I quite agree with you. I, I would never recommend anybody signs a five-year anything in the IT world, whatever the vendor is, whatever the product or service, um, unless, you know, the five-year price is 50% of the three-year price. If there's an incredible financial incentive, yeah, maybe think about it. But there aren't in the deals that I'm seeing, you know, when the, when vendors, whoever they are, offering five-year over three years, they're not really offering much more financially to, to make that lock-in happen. Um, and I think the, the industry is moving so fast and so quickly that it's it's crazy to do long-term deals. Three years, the maximum for any multi-year deal, especially where there's a financial you know uh, component to that that makes it a good thing to do. But five years is just, I think, way too long. You know, because the products you buy today won't exist in three years, let alone five. Even you know, if you take Salesforce for example, Marketing Cloud. You know, if you put that into a five-year contract today, that Marketing Cloud will not be the same product within about two to three years, and maybe called something completely different by five. And they may have acquired a company that's completely replaced the one you've bought today anyway. So they created a whole new Marketing Cloud, which is a way better product, but you're locked into the old one. So you can see, you know. Doing things on long-term basis these days, from it's just crazy, you know. And, that, and that's where shelfware comes from. And that's where money. You talked about waste earlier. You know, there's so many places people waste money in, in this business. And I'll just give you a quick statistic. Um, you know, I was with a bunch of CIOs uh, a couple of weeks ago in London, and we were just, you know, just talking about, you know, their drivers and motivations and budgets. By the way, for 2020, you know, what, what's what's focusing their mind. And we can talk about the budgets piece in a minute, but on the waste side, that was the biggest thing they all said to me. They all said the biggest thing we hate is the amount of money we waste. The problem they got is they don't know where they're wasting the money. It's like there was there's an old advertising um, analogy, wasn't it? That said, I, you know, the guy was asked, you know, of your advertising budget, you know, how much of that is good and how much is is just bad and waste. And the guy said, well, I, I think it's about 50-50. I just don't know which 50% is the good bit. And I think with mm. IT people, they're buying software or they're paying for support services. Um, and to a greater degree, most of the CIOs really just don't know where the waste is. They know they're doing it. And just around the table, I had about eight CIOs around the table. And on, on average, they reckon about 30% of their spend is waste. They just don't know where it is. Now you take, you know, some of those CIOs had budgets of $100 million plus around the table, and they know at least mm. 30 million is waste. They just don't know where it is. But is it is it fair that they should, should they know? I mean, advertising is a little bit, I think your analogy works to a certain extent, but, but what I see, the, the, these things can be, I mean, there's always going to be waste. You always have, I mean, every yeah. business has, you know, you're, you're, you got people coming into the business who don't know your business yet and they cost you money and they're not performing yet because they have to learn the business. People going out the door at a human, that's at a HR level. You've got technology that you're using, but, but you can identify. You, like it is identifiable. Is it just these organizations are too big? Uh, is it too, is the whole industry too complicated? And we just deliberately, have we ended up with a, with a situation where this, this whole industry is, is so overcomplicated that we, even no matter how clever we all are, we just can't figure it out. I, th I think you're right. I mean, it, and then that's partly the, the tech vendors, you know, they've deliberately made things obtuse or, or complicated or, you know, just cloud, you know, the, the old... Um, 
smoke and mirrors, you know, they just made everything sound complicated and, and just, you know, you just can't find your way through. And, and I think, but it shouldn't be that way. Of course, it shouldn't be that way. And I think today, you know, for canny CIOs, you know, the, the ones who have a grip on what they're doing, what they're spending, who they're working with, and how they're spending their money, those CIOs have a much better view on this. They, they don't have the 50-50 advertising problem, you know. You know, they they probably have waste of 10% or less, but they still recognize they got some. But the canny ones have got smarter in, in a number of areas. And those areas I, I suspect are number one, when they first do a deal with a vendor or any renewal, they make sure they negotiate market best rates. So they don't leave money on the table. Uh, by the way, most CIOs don't do that. Most CIOs rely on procurement teams who often negotiate good but not excellent deals. So right up front, they're wasting money when they do a deal with a vendor or I do a renewal. That's one thing. Then the second thing is when you're running that software, you know, you want to get you want to make sure that you're managing and controlling it. So great software asset management tools, you know, there's loads of them existing today. They can really help you make sure that you are optimizing your usage of, of what you've contracted for and reharvesting stuff you're not, that shelfware stuff, and you know, and, and giving that to other users rather than buying new stuff or doubling up and duplicating. So asset management tools is great. And then of course your ongoing spend, you know, your OPEX spend of support costs which you know is is your business in the IBM world you know a lot of clients they just think you've got to stay with your existing uh, software vendor for support and they think well if they wrote the software they obviously they're the best guys to support it well no they're not and there's a whole load of reasons for that we've written papers on it and your whole business is based on this you know so canny CIOs are selectively looking at third party uh, maintenance providers like Origina uh, and are saying, hey, look, we can use some or all of this in some or all of our spaces. So to make sure that they're not wasting money in that ongoing OPEX support area. So three big things there, you know, do the deal right up front. Don't waste money when you first do it. So that means negotiating the best deal. Uh, secondly, use asset tools to make sure you're only using what you need to use and reharvesting what you can. And then thirdly, including your portfolio and elements of third-party support. Uh, not only will it save you money, but it also keep the vendors that retain their support, you know, more honest because they recognize there's competition in the, in the space. So, you know, those three areas, if you're doing those as a CIO, then you're probably reducing that waste from on average 30%, which, you know, was around the table the other week with the CIOs I was with, to probably closer to the 10%. I don't think you'll get it down to zero, but I think you can get a lot closer. You just got to get smarter with how you buy and then what you do with what you bought. You know, those that's my yeah. recommendations. And in bringing this forward to your those canny CIOs in 2020, then and it, and they're looking at their budget. What? Yeah. Are the, is, is that what you're saying? That's what they need to do. Yes. I think if they if if going into 2020, I mean, obviously, today, you know, it's budget season right now. October, November uh, is usually budget season for pretty much most companies, most organizations, private and public sector. You know, everyone's looking at how their spend's going to be in 2020. Um, for a few lucky CIOs, you know, the, the you know the CEO or CFO's given them a bigger budget because they recognise technology with AI and all sorts of stuff going on. You know, it needs to be a massive driver going forward. But for most CIOs, they've got to struggle with the same or a, or a lower budget because, you know, money's tight. 
And for those CIOs who got, you know, got to fund new innovation, they got to find new technology, got, got to get into AI and connect better with their customers. So they got to do more, but with less. What have they got to do? They've got to get canny along the, th the three points I mentioned earlier, buy right, use right, and then you know, optimize and reduce your ongoing spend. They need to do those things uh, across the, their uh, budget space because I think I saw some statistics from, I think it was Deloitte or somebody like that. And it was you know, something like of an IT budget, something like 60% is hung up in legacy spend. Legacy is, you know, stuff you've already got today. It's keeping the lights on, it's paying annual maintenance and support, all that sort of good stuff. Um, and if, you know, with those kind of numbers, that's a huge amount of money. You know, for the $100 million budget, that's $60 million is just locked away and you can't do anything with it. So you look at 2020 and you've already lost 60 million of a 100 million budget. Um, whereas canny CIOs would go, hang on, there is waste in that. There is soft negotiable money we can free out of that, either by renegotiating the contracts, um, better asset management, or looking at third-party support. And they could free up money from that 60 million, that 60%, to pay for more of the innovation that they have to do, they need to do, or else the, the companies are just going to get left behind. So, you know, when it is budget season now, and, and my, my comment here is, don't think that that legacy spend is just a locked away. It's yeah, it's just done. Let's forget that and think about the innovative budget we got. Canny CIOs are putting teams in place to go after that 60% and say, look, can we do this better? You know, without reducing the quality of service that we get or the quality of products or replacing product, or, you know, dumping products, how can we just do it for less? And canny CIOs are actively you know, re, you know, requesting procurement to go after it, but also they're doing it themselves. So, Mark, we're we're, we're close to the end of 2019. We're nearing 2020. Uh, are there still deals to be done? I mean, obviously, SAP and IBM's year ends are coming up. Sales guys are getting anxious. They're below target. Are there still are there still deals to be done by the candy CIOs? I mean, is it is it too late? Can they mobilize to uh, take action on some of the things you've just suggested? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. This is uh, the sales frenzy for IBM and SAP, December 31st year ends. Um, you know, this is the quarter when both of those vendors will do a significant chunk of their renewals and new business as their salespeople, you know, fight to get over the line and get on that, uh, you know, that trip to Barbados or whatever their, their trip is next year. Um, so, that being the case, and both vendors desperately looking for money and revenues. You talked earlier in this podcast about IBM and their numbers. You know, SAP have also, they've got some very good numbers, but they're under heavy pressure to push on and, and have a very successful quarter. With Bill McDermott having left, you know, there's a wobble in the marketplace there as they thought about, you know, what's SAP going forward? What are they going to do? Are they can continue the momentum they've got? So all of that plays into the sales deals that are happening this quarter, November, December. And for any client who's negotiating a you know a new deal or renegotiating an existing deal or support contract, you know they should be looking hard at that and they should be negotiating hard on that basis, because the power in the negotiation right now is with the client, not with the vendor. You know, okay, the vendor's proposing stuff and they're the ones who are saying this is the price you got to pay, 
But in terms of actually doing the deal and doing it at a fair price, the, the, the negotiation leverage is on the client side of the client right now. So, you know, make best use of that. Make hay while the sun shines. What percentage of, of uh, you know, take an IBM for the moment or SAP, what percentage of their, their uh, you know, annual SNS support revenues do you think they're, they're executing in Q4, in this Q4, leading up to the end of, Jan- end of December? Is it 50%? I, I would think it's 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 at least fifty percent. If you're just talking about um, support, uh, maintenance and support, I think the vast majority aligns with IBM's year end. Most clients have done that as a canny negotiation tactic years ago. So I think the you know the, the more than fifty percent of support is probably right aligned for this quarter for for the like of an IBM. In terms of software deals, it's probably forty percent of their annual sales. I'd imagine is new licenses or license sales happening this quarter. So, you know, that, that's still a very substantial number. So it's like that, you know, if you've seen that hockey stick curve that a lot of sales teams get shown every year, that, just to remind them that a lot of renewals occur in the fourth quarter of their fiscal year. You know, they're on the hockey curve right now at IBM and SAP. Uh, but don't forget all the other vendors. I mean, Oracle's half year is November. Salesforce's year end is January. So actually, Salesforce are in their fourth quarter now. They're on the hockey curve. So, you know, there's a lot of vendors out there whose salespeople are just running yep. around in frenzy. And some of these kind of ideas we talked about, um, Mark, are there risks associated with companies going down the road of, of looking at these cost-saving initiatives we talk, you've talked about with the county CIO? What are the risks with, with, with that? Well, the the risks are minimal if you approach it in the right way. You know, if if you if for, you know those three things I said, if you buy right up front, if you negotiate, you know, a market best deal, there's no risk to that. You still buy the products you want in the way that you want it. And they still deliver and implement it in the way you want it and support it in the way you want it. You've just paid a little less for it right up front, and then that that carries through all the years because obviously, you know, maintenance is typically a percentage of net price and renewals are, are a percentage of the net. So you know, it's it, Good to do it right up front. So there's no risk to your vendor relationship or getting the wrong products if you do it that way. You know, asset management, software asset management, if you do that right and reharvest and all that sort of good stuff, you know, the vendor's not going to get upset about that. The fact that you're reharvesting unused licensing, using them elsewhere. Uh, they might get upset about some Microsoft deals in Europe if you resell some of that software into the secondhand market. But, you know, that's just them throwing their, their teddy out the pram. I mean, they're not going to do anything about that realistically. That's just the way of the world these days. And then if they go to third-party support, you know, that, you know, you look at Fortune 500 companies, there's a whole list of them have done it and are doing it, and more people are doing it every year. The growth of the market is amazing. You talked about that Gartner report earlier. You know, you know, we've done similar reports. You know, that market is just growing. There's no risk to clients in doing that. Um, you know, but obviously the, you have to go in it with your eyes open and understand you're entering a slightly different marketplace where you're not going to get necessarily new upgrades uh, to, to new releases. But for many of these software vendors, they're not investing in new releases. There's nothing coming down the pipe. So why, why are you funding nothing? So, you know, from a risk perspective, for all of those three elements there, if, you know, can each CIO can diminish the risk to zero, but get on with saving money? Yeah, yeah, and actually, the interesting thing about some of the risks, I, I, obviously, we, we, we would agree with you on, on most of those points. I think one of the things is, as well, people forget that many of the, that 60% you talked about, the, the legacy technology, that, that is really nothing very much is happening, either by the client or the vendor. What happens is, over time, that the vendors 
and the customers end up with less expertise with that technology, it's still keeping the lights on. And if the lights go off, actually that could become a risk, certainly becomes a problem. So in actual fact, one of the arguments we often use is that you actually need to watch out. Be careful as you get closer to the end of your journey that you may, if you have a problem, you may have no, even though you're spending money, you may have nobody that you can really rely on to actually look after it. So it could become a big, yeah. it could become a big issue for you down the line if you're not careful. Um, because as you look, look at the thing we talked about at the top of the podcast, the number of people, I mean, we talked about how they're treating some of their staff in California, but we've talked on these podcasts before, uh, the number of staff that IBM have let go, that Oracle have let go, that SAP have let go across, I mean, they're hiring, yes, but the, but the core technology uh, products that they make most of the money in still, like the database licenses for Oracle or many of the legacy technology pieces from IBM, make a huge amount of money. The reason they make a huge amount of money is that they, the customers don't make any calls, customers aren't making any changes, and therefore they've let the staff go. They don't have the people. So if too many people come yeah. with a problem, I think there's a real issue there. Um, and that's where yeah. these, some of these alternative ideas you talked about are going to really could actually potentially reduce risk, not increase risk. Like I, I spoke to a bank the day, I speak to banks all the time, but, um, but back in late last year, and they did uh, you know one of those multi-year deals Mark you were mentioning, um, and uh, and some of their products were you know, they had Lotus, they had Unica, they had Webster Commerce. There were a bunch of those products that was uh, then in July nineteen during the first year of their multi-year deal were sold. They got no heads up. Mm-hmm. Now the products that they were that they had entered a multi-year maintenance deal on are no longer owned by IBM, um, and. So now they're dealing. Now they have to deal with a different vendor. They don't know the roadmap, so there's no assurity. And uh, yeah, so that the risk there was they did a multi-year deal. They could have done something different. They didn't, and now they're stuck. Yeah. Um, and it was unforeseen. It's good advice for you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Mark, tell us. Yeah. What is over the last kind of twelve, eighteen months? You must have seen some clever ideas out there. Is there any one that stands out in terms of? Kind of, and uh, that people listen to this podcast could say, actually, that's something they can hang their hat. You've mentioned obviously a number of them. Is there any one particular one that you say this is the one I would really be looking at in, in, in 2020? Um, for me, and I know it, it sounds like I'm, you know, you, you, you know, you probably bought me a few Guinnesses to say this, but you haven't. But for me, 2020, you know, third-party support is a mature marketplace, um, and you know, a canny CIO should have that in their armory for 2020. Whether they're using it today or not, they should definitely put it in their armory for 2020. They should certainly evaluate the market. And whether they put some or all of their particular vendors stuff out to a third party support, just the fact you're looking at it and doing it seriously and maybe putting some of it out can creates competitive pressure and negotiation leverage for the remainder that you may keep with the you know the original software vendor. So anybody who's not got third-party support in their 2020 plans is missing a huge trick. Either because a it'll save you money if you just do it, but also b you know it's, comp- it's competitive uh, negotiation leverage anyway, because everybody's got renewals coming up every year. So you've got to have it in your plan for 2020. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been, uh, as always, an enlightening and educational and uh, great fun to talk to you, as always. Um, Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Um, we will, hopefully I'll see you in London very soon. We might, we might grab one of those Guinnesses before Christmas if we can. 
um, in one of the maybe my 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 uncle's pub in in Covent Garden. I'm just going to close this out then. So thank you to everybody. Thank you to Brendan. Thank you, boss. Thank, thank you again to Mark. Mark. We will be back before the end thank of the you. year. We'll be back before the end of the year. We'll have a podcast with um, another good friend of mine, Dan Sheffield from Paris, a lawyer made famous for his tackling Google and his advocacy for the rights of the digital age. Um, we'll be back then. Two guys discussing software. Two Irish guys. Thank you. See you from us. Thank you very much. <laughs>